Good morning. Our scripture reading today uh, comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, and Psalm 63, verse 1. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. That was me. <laughs> Just got to own it sometimes. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob, and I'm glad you're here today. Thank you, Deanne, for reading um, Romans 5, 8, or Matthew 5.8 and Psalm 24. And we are looking at this idea of being blessed by God or being happy in the Lord, specifically to this idea of pure in heart. So, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's one time where Jesus is with his disciples. He's trying, it's this transition point in his ministry. He's been teaching them, he's been leading them, he's been discipling them, and he's about to transition to this going down the road of what will end in crucifixion. And he says to his followers, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So before we get to this idea of purity, I want us to think about this idea of abundant life. Do you believe that your life is abundant? Do you say, yes, I just have this fullness of life. Like, and then when you look at your friends and how they live and what they have, do you go, oh yeah, totally, I still have the full life. Or do you like, Maybe less. And then, if you were to have someone record a day or maybe a couple days in your week, random moments, where you live, what you do, and then send it to someone in a third world country and they were to look at it, would they say you have this abundant life? And if that's not getting your head to spin enough, let's just add the fact that Jesus makes this abundant life comment right on the heels of talking about a thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And what should we be thinking about that those two things are together? So I hope I've thoroughly at least intrigued you if I haven't confused you. 
But we're in this series called Happy Home where we're looking at this word happy that Jesus used in the same way that he used the word blessed for people who affiliate and identify with his kingdom. And we're applying five of these beatitudes, as they're sometimes called, to the homes that we live in or, more accurately, the people that we live with. Last week, we looked at this idea of Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. In two weeks, we're going to be, I'm super excited, my friend, uh, guest speaker, pastor is coming in, and she's going to talk about happy are those who make peace, not take it, but make it. And in the final week, we'll see what it means that happy are those who are actually persecuted for righteousness' sake. But today, again, looking at this idea of Happier the pure in heart, because they'll see God. So last week, I introduced you to my friend Larry. Larry's a missionary that is serving Jesus and the poor in Honduras. He's been doing that since 1996. He, uh, and then I think his brother, and then a crew of people started doing these water projects to bring clean water to villages in uh, remote and really poor areas. And he's done over 40 of those projects. 11 years ago, he marries a friend of mine. They adopt a 20-something with special needs, and then they have four kids of their own, seven, six, four and a half, and not quite three. And we, over dinner, found out, I promise this is going somewhere, over dinner, we found out that the almost three-year-old loves baseball. Like, can't quite say the word, but like, loves baseball. And so our son's a baseball player, so we invited them to go to a baseball game, which they said, sure, that'd be great. So Last week, they all arrived right before the game was going to start, and they brought their little chairs, and they set up their little chairs, and immediately, they sat down and they started asking about Luke. What, what number is he? Where does he play? And they were completely engaged. For over an hour, they sat patiently. They were focused, and they really sat still and watched a game that they've really never participated in or even, or even watched. Now, seven, six, four and a half, and not quite three. To me, that's like, that's like Jesus feeding the 5,000. <laughs> there was no self-focus. There was no impatience. There was no boredom. So I had breakfast with Larry last week, and I asked him about that. And he's like, yeah, a lot of people are commenting on, on our kids, and I'm, n- I'm not quite sure what it is. I mean, we sometimes feel like we're doing the right things, but a lot of times we feel like we are completely missing it. So I reflected on that, and I don't think they have, I know they don't have what many of us would include in our abundant life. Like, I know they do have electricity, and I also know it goes out regularly and randomly every day. <laughs> They can't quite depend on it. I think they have two computers. One's super old uh, that they have dial-up and an email for, and then one is somewhat old. Uh, And they have a super old TV, but it doesn't get any cable. It doesn't have any channels. They don't have Dish, Netflix, Hulu, Prime, YouTube TV, or whatever the next thing is. Their kids do school with books that you open and have pages in them. Um, They have workbooks and paper and pencils for schoolwork. They have other kids and each other to play with in the neighborhood. Uh, And they don't really have any electronic toys. 
They actually don't have many toys in general. They climb trees that are way too high <laughs> and they could get really hurt. And um, they ride and share bikes that are way too big. Uh, and I'm not suggesting, as you might imagine or wonder, that we all move to Honduras and, or just become Quakers and revolt against modern technology. But what I am suggesting is that what I saw, not just in a seven, six, four and a half, and almost three-year-old, but in two adults, was a kind of purity of heart that they have that I don't think most of us have. So now you might be tempted to just write me off as weird or out of touch, but consider the things that we go to to either provide or protect uh, for our kids or kids in general. Because if I was going to give you instruction on how to physically protect your kids, you might, and I know our culture would totally applaud me for it. I mean, some of you are old enough in the room to, to not even know what bike helmets were when you had bikes. I think I had, I think there were bike helmets that were invented when I learned to ride a two-wheeler, but no one wore them. <laughs> no one. And although I did wear wrist guards when I was, you know, learning to rollerblade, because you got to be a little safe, I didn't have the protective helmet, elbow pads, knee pads, complete ensemble. My mom may have bought it for me, but I'm like, I can't, I can't wear that. That would not go over well. But today, you're totally judged, or at least scolded sternly, if, you know, you don't wrap your kid in bubble wrap and put a helmet on them for them to go out on the swing set. It is crazy how concerned we are with keeping kids physically safe. But when you start talking about how to protect kids spiritually or have this sense of purity, maybe morally, but more than that, you're just labeled weird or prudish or completely, completely out of it. So our culture celebrates protecting kids spiritually but mocks it when we protect kids. They celebrate it when we protect kids physically. They mock it when we protect kids spiritually. Now, listen to this description from Ephesians chapter 4 about a culture in a place called Ephesus 2,000 years ago and just how much it is similar to today. Ephesians 4 says that they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. They become calloused. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every kind of practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So I want us to think about this idea of darkened. Have you ever gone into a theater that where you enter the theater into the lobby? but then you have to exit a side door and you're just out into space right away? Like, I'm convinced that these are the theaters that made the matinee discount. You know, it's not just because less people attend during the day. It's because you walk into this theater and your eyes start to adjust and, you know, you, of course you get the big pop and popcorn. And so, you know, you watch the movie, you, you're entertained and you, you try to be a good patron and pick up your popcorn and your pop so someone else doesn't have to do it. But then you walk out and you're slammed by this light from the day and you 
hit your face with the popcorn, some of the old maids go down your shirt, and it's a mess, and it seems like you can't see anything for about five minutes, and you're wondering because, you know, it didn't seem to hurt that much going into the theater, but coming out of the theater, there's this searing pain. I'm just the only one. That type of idea is what I think the writer's getting at when he says they become darkened in their understanding. Maybe we've passively allowed so much impurity into our homes that, that impurity doesn't even have to be something grotesque or something sinful, just impurity, that we become hardened in our hearts. Our understanding has become darkened. We've been, and this is the key, unable or unwilling to see the goodness of God. Like maybe in pursuing this abundant life, we've left the doors and windows of our souls wide open to let the thief come in and steal, kill, and destroy. Like if you knew someone was going to rob your home next week, would you take any steps to try and prevent that? My in-laws, great people, love them, calm, collected, patient, were robbed several years ago. And watching the insecure, disheveled state that it put them, both of them in was stark to me. It was like walking out of those theaters. And they took steps to go, okay, how did the thief break in and how can we prevent this from happening? So I think it'd be good for us to look in the same way. If someone was going to break into our soul, how could we have a plan of action to safeguard against that? I think we have to understand first how the thief breaks in. And I think the first way that the thief breaks in to steal, kill, and destroy is by distorting what purity is all about. Because we've already talked about purity for 10 minutes now, and you all have an idea in your mind of what you think it is and what you think I think it is. But purity is skewed as innocence or gullibility that we have to outgrow. That's how the enemy starts it. We apply purity almost exclusively to children, especially when it's considered innocence. And although we might disagree on the timing of this, we agree that children should be protected to a certain point because they might not be ready to acquire some knowledge, but eventually they have to be prepared for the trials and the temptations and the difficulties that they're going to face in the real world, which just assume a loss of purity. So far, so far okay? So then adults that have this kind of purity get portrayed in media or in entertainment as ignorant or dull or inexperienced. There are people that are easy to take advantage of. If you were a Cheers watcher, Woody Harrelson. So three of us watch Cheers. Um, they're portrayed as not smart or at least not street smart. And in our culture, we value education and experience and, and even appropriate exposure. So gullibility and innocence are completely looked down on. That's the first way I think that the enemy starts to steal, kill, and destroy is by distorting what purity is. Second thing, the enemy distorts purity as the opponent of fun. Think about this storyline. How many movies fit this one? Where there's boy or girl who's naive and unhappy. Uh, the character feels like a failure at school or around their friends. Character is told they need more relational experience, if you know what I mean. And the plot continues as character tries and fails, or usually fails, to achieve success in this way. 
They become more of a social misfit until finally the right hookup happens and the main character is then celebrated as popular and successful. Like there's one way for us to grow up and it's to lose that kind of purity. And finally, I think the enemy paints purity almost similar to innocence, but in just this one singular vein of moral wholesomeness or perfection. But see, when purity is looked at only through that lens, then people see it as impossible. It's kind of this one-and-done type of issue. Oh, and in the Christian world, we are way tempted to do this. Like, oh, you messed up once? Okay, never going to be pure again. Might as well not even try. That's how the enemy robs us of our purity, distorts what it means, twists it as the opponent of fun, and then paints it into this one singular issue. So if we're going to have a plan of action to safeguard not just what, but who we care about most, we have to know what's going on. The first thing we have to do, I think, in this plan of action is to get our own hearts right. Where's your heart with God in this? God tells all people to love him with all their hearts. Jesus said it's the first and greatest commandment. When God was speaking to Samuel the prophet as he was looking for the next leader, he says, I look at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. How do we look at that? And in Hebrew thought, the heart is actually the center of a person's character. It's the will, it's the emotions, choice, thoughts. The heart and the soul and the mind were all considered intertwined. The hands were a symbol of what we do and our actions, but the heart was how we think, how we, how we make that choice. So Psalm 119, 9 through 11, if we're really going to get our hearts right, if we really want to talk about what it means to remain pure in this world of distractions, Psalm 119 tells us how. It says, how can a young person stay on a path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart, God. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I would say that's not just for young people. That's probably for all of us. And it's super hard. Isn't that, that's really articulate, isn't it? It's super hard. It's super hard. I'm going to go with it. To live according to God's word if we don't know God's word. Verse 11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart. When I was in college, my friend uh, Bart and I, we made this pact um, about who, what, who we would date. And we said, you know, like, if, if the girl's an alcoholic, like, that's just going to cost you a lot of money. And if she smokes all the time, when you kiss her, it's going to be like licking an ashtray. So we're just going to make these, I know, we were so, <sighs> not our finest moments. But I remember we put in our head Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young girl. We didn't do a lot right, but we were sticking God's word in our mind at various times in important times in our life. And 
It doesn't have to be hundreds of Bible verses. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you have a kid in kids ministry, our kids get a memory verse every week. You can learn it with them. Our news and notes has a verse each week. You can memorize that one. And if you have uh, a Bible app like YouVersion, they do a verse of the day every day. You can ask the Holy Spirit, hey, is this one that I should put in my heart? Is this one I should put in my heart? I believe God will lead you in that. And you can start hiding it there, but then sharing it and memorizing it. It's, and, and memorizing is not supposed to be like studying for a test. Like, I just want to get the right answers. It's more like reading your favorite novel over and over and over again. And then think about it. When, someone, when, when you're reading your favorite novel and somebody else reads it and they're telling you about, about a part, you know what happens, right? Like you get up, you sit on the edge of your seat and you just can't wait to jump in and start talking about the character because you've, you've put this book into you. You've read it so many times. It's become part of you and you can live into the story and share that with other people. That's what it means to hide God's word in your heart. And really, if we think about this, it's like, do we want a Christian home? A Christian home is just one that says, I believe in God and I seek him with part of my heart. And a Christ-centered home says, Jesus is first in my life and I seek him with all my heart. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly. That's like skewing purity into this undefiled perfection. Seeking God with all of your heart doesn't mean you're going to make mistakes. It just means you're going to continue to go after him. Continue to say, God, I want you to be first in my life. It's praying a prayer like, God, get my heart right with you. Because if you're like me, then you've been deceived by the thief and you've probably deceived yourself. So God, help me to get my heart right. Show me where I need to confess something that is maybe inappropriate conversations. Or God, if I'm thinking impure things, God, convict me. Or if I'm being entertained by things that break your heart, God, show me. Or if I'm allowing things into my home that are impure, God, that distract me from you, that that dilute me, God, show me. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. It's this prayer that says, As much as I want to get my heart right, the reality is only Jesus can make my heart new and pure. I can't do it on my own, and to try and do it on my own would either lead me towards despair or self-righteousness, neither of which are awesome. So I continue to come back and say, Jesus, make my heart right. Restore it and make it new. So that's what I think get our heart right means. But I also think it goes beyond that to guard our heart and the heart of the next generation. Psalm or Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything else flows from it. Again, it's this idea that the heart is the center of our character, that our thoughts, that our feelings, that our emotions, they all come from this place. It's this wellspring that has to be protected, not diluted. I think Psalm 24 gets at this too when it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may meet with God? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Pure can mean 
clean, as in like, I have dirty clothes, they're stained, I'm going to make them clean. But pure can also mean this idea of unmixed. If you are a really avid Bible reader and you spend time in Leviticus, it's actually a really good book, but it talks a lot about this be unmixed. A lot of people can twist it to mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it's like, do not, uh, this one's a little weird, but you know, do not put a goat in its mother's milk. That would be mixing. Or do not put these two types of fabrics together. It would be mixing. It's this idea that like water that is pure has no contaminants in it. It's unmixed. Or metals that aren't pure have impurities in them, and so they can be cleaned of impurities, and now they're not only a pure metal, but a precious metal. God was trying to explain to his people what it would look like to be holy as he is holy, what it would look like to display for the world what it means to be in relationship with this God. That's what it ultimately is about. For us, what it might mean is that we look at our mixed motives. How many of us can say, oh yeah, I do, I do everything with pure motives. I don't know many of us who could say that. You could go right down the list. Do I, do I donate things with pure motives? Do I do my job with pure motives? Do I even enter my relationship with God with pure motives? Do I examine my motives regularly? I think that's part of what it means to guard our heart. But also, in this idea of guarding the next generation, it means that that's what we're praying for and looking at with young people because it does not work to just parent to behaviors. It's easy because people will applaud you for it. Oh, your kids behave so well. But parenting to the heart means that you're constantly asking, God, show what their inward motivations are. Because the kids who, the young adults who become 18, leave the house, go somewhere, and then like, uh, I don't know, you know, 18-year-olds gone wild or something, like go off the deep end, they have been like externally behaving but inwardly rebelling. To parent to the heart means that we're asking those kind of motivational questions, asking God, show us where they're rationalizing and where we're rationalizing. I think parenting, to guarding the next generation's heart is a little bit like when my son was seven or maybe eight years old, he asked me about watching a certain PG-13 movie. I, I really can't remember what it was. I just remember I told him it wasn't appropriate. And he's like, why? And I said, well, there's a lot of swearing, there's, there's too much violence, and there's suggestive content. And then I'm like, why did I say that? He's going to ask about the suggestive content. I don't want to have this conversation at seven or eight. And as I'm like... In there, he goes, super calm and innocent. Well, Dad, if it's not appropriate for me to watch, then why is it appropriate for you to watch? I didn't have a good answer. Again, you might, this might make you uncomfortable. You might think I'm weird. But when I, again, when I reflected this week on the verses and on this conversation that I had with my missionary friends who, maybe out of necessity, not even choice, they get to live less deluded than we do. Because it's not about 
pursuing purity. We could make it that, but that's not my point. I don't think that's God's point. It's about connecting with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus connects to the heart all the time. Oh, you've heard it said, do not murder. That's the behavior. That's the action. But I'm going to point to the heart. If you look at someone and you're angry with them, you're actually committing murder in your heart. This is this idea of parenting to the next generation's heart. But ultimately, it has to go beyond that. This writer, when they say, the one who can meet with God on this mountain, Psalm 24, is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who does not trust in idols or swear by a false card. It's not just about the actions. It's not just about the inward thoughts. It's also about our faith, what we believe about God. And this isn't just some ancient irrelevant thing that we go, oh, we don't trust, we don't have idols, we don't swear by false gods. No, we all have idols. We all do things and hold things that are created that we think will give us power or pleasure. We all believe things that we think will give us control but will end up controlling us, false gods and idols. And yet, if blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, if this is really about our connection to God, then we have to pursue presence with God, not just purity. The earth is the Lord, Psalm 24 starts out. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. We we have to put God in the right frame of mind that he is much bigger and much more unexplainable than we'll ever understand. That he is that holiness or purity to God is about his utter uniqueness, his set apartness that people are cautioned over and over in the Bible to enter God's presence carefully. So if we're going to talk about pursuing purity, we've got to talk about it in pursuing the presence of God because that's where it always came back to in the story of God. So last thing, there's this prophet, Isaiah. And Isaiah is not from a tribe, a family, where they could enter the temple. And he doesn't even have the job of temple worker or priest. He has the job of prophet. And he has this vision where he's in the temple and he sees God. And he says in Isaiah 6, 4, like, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. And his robe filled the temple. And the sound of the voices, the doorposts, the thresholds, they shook. The temple was filled with smoke. All the same language that happened when God came down on Mount Sinai. Like the Lord's presence is there and Isaiah is freaking out. He says, woe is me, which is like real biblical for like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen God and no one can see God and live. That's why he's so scared. So this purity is about seeing God and we can't see God and live and we have to come in carefully. Then how does this work? Uh, verse 7, 6, verse 6. So one of these creatures from God, seraphims, flew to me, he says, with a live coal in his hand and it went, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So something that was fiery, that was pure, that came from God, went out from God 
touched this person who said they were unpure or unclean and made them pure. In verse 7, it says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Okay, so there's a super strange thing. Where, what are you talking about? Like, if I've lost all of you, I'm sorry. But something holy, something pure came out of the temple, left the temple, went to something that was someone that was impure and made them pure. This isn't about being so worried about what we touch or what we do that we either live in fear or judgment of everyone. This is about understanding who God is and then wanting to seek that God. This is a God who who leaves the temple and purifies things he touches because he's so good and holy. This is exactly who Jesus is. He left God. He left the presence of God, came to us. He touched things that according to all the religion, he wasn't supposed to touch. Like, don't touch dead people. Don't touch blood. Well, he touched people that were bleeding, and he healed them. He touched dead people, and they lived. He touched people with diseases, and they were healed. Again, something that was pure came out of God's presence into just the ordinary and made it pure. Not to be holier than thou, but just to be holy and to reflect that holiness to others. This is what we do. In a few minutes, we're going to have this vision meeting and we're going to give some highlights and we're going to talk about where I think God is taking us. And it's all in this same vein. That we are called by God, not because we're pure, but exactly because we're impure to live in relationship with him because he makes us pure. He restores us with him. And then to go and live that out with the little or lot that you have just as who you are. It's a gift. And it's a gift that we bring to a broken and impure world. It's not about protecting ourselves or our kids from evil. It's about enabling us to encounter God, to join with Jesus and see the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. Because there is a world that is hungry to know this kind of God and is hungry for this kind of faith. Not very hungry for religion, but hungry for this kind of faith. And he wants to use us in ordinary and amazing ways. So as the band comes up, I just invite you to ask the Holy Spirit, God, what's my part in this? What are you saying to me? And for some of you, it might be this conviction that I've allowed too many things into my life that I'm either distracted or deluded. For others, the Holy Spirit might point to a specific behavior or a specific thought, a specific belief that you are trusting in an idol or a false god that you have to cast out, reject, turn away from. Agreeing with God is confession, saying, this is true, God. God already knows anyway. But when we bring it into the light, he takes the power away from it. For others of you, it might be a specific call to something. A specific call to engaging God's word or live in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit every moment. 
For others, it might be to reject uh, one of the devil's schemes of how he distorts purity. Think of, thinking of it as perfection or the opposite of fun or whatever. It's casting that out and asking for a new, new definition of it. And for others, it might be to live like the prophet Isaiah. Someone who understands the awesomeness of God and the gift that healing and restoration bring. To be that transforming presence in the world today. So God, would you speak? Speak.